is a fragrance. It brings out the best part of you. That is part of you. That's you. Spray it on your wrists. Decolletage. Elbows. Behind your knees. In your mouth. Available for women. And men. And dogs. Cats too. Try Multiplicity soon. Available at your local home, office, operating room, butcher, school, or DJ booth, and just about anywhere, anytime. Join us for episode five, Multiplicity, where we look at the different versions of ourselves. March 2nd. Bring all your egos. We'll see you all then. Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Rip, rip, rip. If there's no one around to observe you or interact with you, let's just say you're all alone. Do you have an identity? We have identities for and because of other people. We give that most personal thing to each other. It's a social construct, an illusion. The word identity comes from the Latin idem, meaning same, similar to the word identical. It seems that the idea of identity implies that our personal traits remain consistent, thus forming a character of what and who we are. And yet, we are changing all the time. Whether or not we try, our looks and our bodies change, we change jobs, our tastes change, we change our mind. And yet, there's the essential thing about you that makes you unmistakably you, and me, me. So what is that thing that stays the same? That persistence is the cornerstone of our identity. Who are you? What makes you, you? Ready to eavesdrop in? For every relationship we are part of, a part of ourselves is brought forth from somewhere within us. Is it possible to keep our same identity as we evolve through our different stages of life? Hold strong. Here's Justin's before and after. Not terribly long before my first daughter was born, I felt lost. I felt trapped in a job that was tolerable but increasingly claustrophobic. Money was far from abundant. My father-in-law and dog had just died. My dad was sick. It was completely suffocating. It felt like life was a giant game was rigged against me. It was a competition between the universe and me, and I couldn't possibly win. Up until that point, I'd spent about a decade and a half in a state of arrested development. It's not unusual for a man of a certain age in New York City, but there wasn't much to make me take life seriously as long as the bills were paid, which they largely were, but not always. I wasn't the guy who burned the candle at both ends, but I did have my moments. My very patient and super hot girlfriend, who's now my very patient and super hot wife, once distracted a cab driver with idle conversation about the weather so he wouldn't notice I was throwing up out the rear window when we drove home at 2 a.m. There was also a night that my friend Mark introduced me to the exceptional vodka gimlets at the Holiday Cocktail Lounge, which I enthusiastically took to, at one point actually chasing one with another one while I was chain-smoking cigarettes. I can promise you that I spent the next morning in agony. There were definitely times I saw the sun come up before going to bed. At the same time, I actively looked forward to weeknights vegging at home, playing PlayStation for four or five hours while I'd eat a bag of chips and drink a 20-ounce Coke for dinner, which cost about two bucks at the bodega, which I considered a thoughtful use of my food budget. I enjoyed having those hours to myself. I really hated people putting demands on my time. Frankly, I was pretty selfish, but for a 20-something guy in the city, I thought I was appropriately selfish. The problem was I hated people putting demands on my time enough that it pretty much directly helped me balance between five jobs in seven years, which, when you compare it to the fact that my dad had two jobs in 38 years, compares rather unfavorably. I suspect that some people close to me, mostly my immediate family and the future in-laws, had their doubts that I'd ever figure it out. Sort of like how my parents admitted after I graduated college they fully expected me to have very low grades, like probation-worthy grades, when I first got there. Like, I knew what I had to do, but would I actually do it? That was always a question that I never answered particularly well. 
a month before my 30th birthday, I got a job that settled me down a bit because I found I really liked it. I finally took work seriously, and I registered the thrill of going to the ATM and seeing four digits in my bank account. And I can't tell you what it was like to always go there holding your breath as you chose different uh, denominations of money to take out. You try to take out 100, get insufficient funds, try 80, get insufficient funds. Finally, sometimes you just took 20 bucks out, figured it was a fast food night. And that was pretty much all you were going to get, Count. When I turned 36, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first baby. It changed absolutely everything. Not outwardly at first, but everything just felt heavier, like physically heavier. My job became more important. It became harder to read the news and see the world becoming more chaotic. And for Christ's sake, don't let me see a movie, read an article, or catch a snippet of a TV show where a child would be harmed. I was an absolute wreck. The change was physical as much as psychological. I went to a doctor for a physical for the first time in a few years. I quit smoking, or rather, a actually quit cheating with cigarettes. I'd been not smoking since I'd quit two years earlier. I started an ill-fated regimen of drinking water every day, which didn't last particularly long once I realized it had A, none of the flavor, or B, any of the caffeine of my preferred beverages. But then on top of all of that, my father was dying. He'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer three years earlier, which is an eternity to stay alive with the disease. But the end was nearing, and we could all tell. It became a race between the normal gestation process and the abnormal cells that were destroying him. He died on May 8th, less than three months before my daughter was born. On July 7th, 2011, my daughter arrived. She arrived screaming bloody murder, the spitting image of me at the same age. Looking at her in my wife's arms those first moments, my hands trembling, lump in my throat, eyes brimming with tears, was magical. I was full of all the emotions that I'd mocked for years. The emotions new parents always share when they talk about their very beautiful bundles of joy who are more special and unique than any other baby that came before. That was the moment it all changed. That's when I grew up. That's when the dumb joke stopped. That's when I truly grasped the enormity of fatherhood. And that moment lasted approximately 12 hours until my daughter pooped for the first time. My wife and I started laughing about everything and how absurd it was that suddenly we had a child. And it was a child that was reliant upon us, us of all people, for everything in her life. We looked at each other with stupid grins on our faces and just said, Holy shit, we have a baby. We can't give this baby to anyone else. This is forever. This is our life now. And because our girl was born just before midnight, we couldn't get a room that I was allowed to stay in. So I had to go home. I promised my wife I'd be back as early as I was allowed back, which turned out to be about 6.30 in the morning. I left the hospital on a hot, humid night at 2.30 a.m. I went to a Walgreens and tried to buy camel lights, but settled for parliaments. And I stood on the corner smoking cigarette after cigarette with shaking hands and a dizzy feeling in my head. I mean, this was it. I was a dad. I had a child. I had a daughter. This was amazing. I wanted to tell all the drunken 20-somethings stumbling to the pizza place on the corner I'd done it. I felt light as a feather. I felt absolutely giddy. I felt like throwing up. The second night in the hospital, I stayed the night. Around midnight, our baby wouldn't stop crying, and my wife, absolutely exhausted, asked whether I would take the baby to the nursery so she could at least get an hour of sleep, my wife. So I rolled the girl's bassinet down the hallway as quietly as I could, which was pretty hard, actually, because it had the noisiest, squeakiest wheel ever, only to have the on-duty nurse say, you know you can't just drop her off. You need to start figuring this out. You're going home tomorrow. I trudged back to our room, pushing the bassinet in its stupid, squeaky-ass wheel, absolutely defeated. It's when we got home the next day that I realized just how different life would be. Not for the myriad reasons I thought. It was different because of how normal it was. We parked our car down the block like always, walked into our apartment like always. It didn't feel different. I still made dumb jokes and wore the same clothes. I didn't suddenly throw on a pair of khakis and tuck in my shirt and comb my hair nicely. I ordered from the same delivery places. I slept in the same bed. Although, at that point, for no more than 60 to 90 uninterrupted minutes those first months. I started thinking this might be okay. I may be able to do this. I may not have to throw away all the things that made me, me, for all those years. 
I may just have to do those things with a baby and 20 pounds of baby-related items in tow. My daughter is three and a half years old now. She's got a little sister who just turned one. Over those years, I've learned a lot about what being a father is, and happily, it's not so different from the decades I spent not being a father. It has its ups and downs. It has its highs and lows. It's got its good stuff. It's got its bad stuff. What I've learned is that fatherhood is trying to impart life lessons while wearing a tiara that my oldest girl insists I wear after singing Let It Go from Frozen for the millionth goddamn time that day. It's disciplining her for biting her little sister, but then trying not to giggle while she farts in the middle of the lecture. It's praising her for taking her first steps and immediately groaning because she took that opportunity to pee on the floor. But the most startling revelation through all of this is that I haven't had to fundamentally change anything. I'm just different things at different times. I get to be silly and serious, whimsical and stern. It's never been one or the other. So I did it. I won. A quote from the Dhammapada, which for anyone who um, has studied Buddhism at all, it's pretty uh, reasonably well known goes, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts, it is made up of our thoughts. If a man speaks or acts with an evil thought, pain follows him, as the wheel follows the foot of an ox that draws the carriage. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts, it is made up of our thoughts. If a man speaks or acts with pure thought, Happiness follows him like a shadow that never leaves him. You don't need to be afraid of the concrete facts, the labels that throw you into a path of predictable outcomes. If you're really troubled by the staples of your identity, curiosity will always get the better of you. As my comedy hero, Andy Kaufman, and he's also my alter ego, once challenged, what's real, what's not, that's what I do in my act test how other people deal with reality. If you've never been a commercial salmon fisher, maybe your reality isn't commercial salmon fishing. But then again, maybe it teaches you just what you need. Zach tells us his story. Let me tell you about commercial salmon fishing in Alaska. I fished hard by the river in a summer's dawn it was a long time of fishing my life was gone i worked long freaking hours cause the sunlight always in alaska i made up songs to get by. So yeah, I spent about three and a half months fishing in Alaska. Commercial salmon fishing involves two boats. So you have one big boat that has a second boat with it. And these two boats stretch out this big, long quarter mile net. And they do this really close to shore, like a 90 degree angle so that they can catch and stop the path of these migrating salmon who are trying to go back from spending two years out at sea, go back to the very river that they uh, were born from. Scientists don't even, not really even 100% sure how these salmon know how to get back to their home streams. I think it has to do with magnetic fields. It's really actually quite captivating. I was um, completely unqualified for this job. 
Basically, I had spent a winter prior to this job working in a remote lodge in Alaska, uh, serving this captain who would come in and drink beers, stay at our lodge. And then after a few months of hanging out with this captain, he contacted me later and was like, do you want a job on my boat? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm on a job on your boat. It's a huge, tremendous opportunity. It's like a dream come true. So I ran toward it. Basically, I always dreamed of being a, uh, not really a being a really big macho man, but of being perceived as a really big macho tough guy. And so a lot of my pursuits were about me trying to, to get to that point. Basically, this guy was like built with this big round barrel chest, had a lot of cuts like on his hands from 20 years of, of getting snagged by hooks and errant knife scratches. Not from hard masturbation. Like without a doubt, I was just a complete failure at it. And there were so many reasons why. I, f I figured that I had a lot of moxie and I had a lot of courage where I'd be like, yeah, like I'll, I'll definitely try anything. I'll, I'll do anything, I'll go at it. Which had gotten me, you know, interesting jobs. Working in Alaska, I worked on a dairy farm in New Zealand. Um, I'd worked different labor jobs in Chicago. And I was like, yeah, I can do anything. And so yes, I can work on a salmon boat because all you have to do is say yes and figure out the details later. One time we're, we're fishing at this very crucial point in the process, in the salmon process, where you have these, these two boats that have stretched out this massive quarter mile net. And after about 30 minutes, they close in this net from a straight line basically to an arc and then into a fully closed circle. And then, they be, and then they begin to pull up on board all these fish that are trapped from underneath or and inside of the circle. During that process, I am uh, required to help stabilize the bigger boat in this second boat, this smaller little skiff. And it's a really crucial role because the captain's on deck with just two other deckhands who are tirelessly pulling in this massive net and they're covered in fish scales and they're dripping wet with sweat and, and seawater. And I'm just clean as a whistle on this other little tiny boat 20 yards away. And I'm in charge of steering this, this sort of tandem boat setup as we go around this gigantic net and pull it up aboard. My job simply is to properly steer my fucking little boat so that their job is easier on deck. I'm really, like, I oversteer. And when I correct myself, I overcorrect. And basically, communicating the problems isn't good. So, <laughs> whenever I do something wrong, my captain's like, What the fuck are you doing? What are you fucking stupid? Like, turn right. And I'm like, Alright, I'm turning right. And then he's like, No, you're oversteering. You fucking idiot. Come back. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, this process basically from day one, I was bad at it. And then two, three months in, I was doing the exact same mistakes. I had exhibited zero improvement. I never learned and was never able to properly correct it. And at some point I just gave up. My captain and I had no good sense of communication. Uh, he would yell at me from across this, this abyss, uh, from their wet, seawatery hell. I just don't respond well to negative energy. So if someone's saying, you're a fucking idiot, you're not doing it right, I uh, shut down because I start to believe it. I'm like, you know what, I am a fucking idiot. What am I doing? I'm really not good at this and uh, no one succeeds in this process. I was honest about the job. He knew I had no fishing experience. It, I mean, it should have raised red flags when I got offered the job as the second in charge, the skiff man on a boat. That's something that people usually take a few years at least to work their way up to through really good solid experience. All I wanted to be was the Morton's fisherman, which is why I grew a beard. I was drinking Old Spice. 
Unlike any other job I had ever worked before, this one was totally different because there were no easy outs. I had signed a contract that said if I quit at any point during the three and a half months working, I would forfeit 50% of my earnings up to that point. Basically, as every week went on in the summer, more and more money was at stake to be lost. And so therefore, I felt like it was incentivized to stay in my situation. I would journal every day. I didn't talk to any of my other crew members about how I really felt and how, so I spent a lot of time alone journaling on the boat, wedged between a smokestack and a ge generator, and it feels like a secret little garden or something like that. I really was basically in uh, an abusive relationship with my captain. And so I would write, my captain saw me doing this. And one day he snatched the journal out of my hand. Like, well, let's, let's see what the fuck you're writing about in here. And I was like, holy shit. Because there was just a litany of this fucking fat fuck who uh, yells at me, writing about times when, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, something I hadn't ever done previously in my life, I would like wash my face, get the salt off my face. And then I'd put some moisturizer on my face. I was like, I think I'm gonna take care of my body on this boat. And he's like, oh, you're in there looking at your pretty face in the mirror. And I'm like, yeah, I want to take care of my skin. <laughs> I don't want to look like your dumb ass. I guess if Macho is looking like a piece of shit or like a chum bucket that's been frozen and thrown over to sea, chewed up and pulled back up on the string. Yeah, he's a macho son of a gun. At this point, I'd been journaling for like probably two months in this journal, private thoughts of like ranging from anywhere, from fuck this captain, fuck this crew, fuck this boat, I'm stuck on here, to then quaint moments of Stockholm Syndrome, where I'm like, you know what, <laughs> my captain's not such a bad guy. He's human, he's got a family to feed, he's got a complex background. But when he, when he grabbed my journal, I didn't know what he would look at, and luckily he was just, he opened it to me talking about, you know, the delicious smell of kelp, how at low tide, the exposed kelp on the rocks smells like a sweet melon. Which of course his reaction was like, ah, fuck this shit. And puts it down, when if he had turned the next page, it was, goddamn captain, son of a bitch. From that point on, I started writing in German. My German's not great. It was good enough for ranting, and I knew my own German, and I'd mix it in with some English, so I'd be like, fick er, meinen captain. So much of my decision to join this fishing crew was built up in the thought of being macho and all the pride that came along and the identity of people being like, that's the most macho man I've ever seen. Or like imagining to myself, if I quit right now, how could I possibly explain this to all my hundreds of Facebook friends? My pride was so involved that I uh, didn't want to admit failure and move on. The idea of being a macho man for me was I was really grasping for identity. During my young 20s especially, I was grasping for my own sexual identity. I really wanted something that was a strong identity either way. In the meantime of trying to figure out what I was, I wanted to have a really good exterior image of like, you know, while I'm privately finding out if I'm straight or if I'm, or if I'm queer, you know, I want at least some sort of clear image on the outside. Later, spoiler alert, I would post on Facebook, hey everybody, I'm bisexual, I like men, I like women. But that came from struggling for years and putting up a fake image of myself and pursuing things that would uh, at least clarify to other people who I was. But in the meantime, I was really ignoring who I was to myself. You know, pursuing really crazy adventures and, and the idea of vanity. And it's, it's, it's all about presenting something to the world that's very clear. I don't eat fish anymore. 
since getting off of the boat. I wanted to completely separate myself from the commercial fishing world and everything that surrounded it. All the boats and the smell of diesel and the pollution and the brute and the smoking and the drinking. I just wanted to step away from that. I became vegetarian so I could step away from all commercial animal products and systems. But uh, I feel like whenever I tell anybody that, they're like, they always glance down at my stomach. And they're like, oh, but you're still, <laughs> you still got a pot belly. One, one thing was after the boat, the four months that followed, I was really depressed. I felt like a huge failure. Uh, I was just very reclusive. About maybe closer to a year later, I started to take improv comedy classes again. And what was so great about that was that I began to collaborate again. I began to agree again. I began to think positively again, because that's what that is all about. And that was something that um, I had not done for that entire summer. And it was something that was refreshing and I felt like saved me and brought me back to life again. I'm not a, an advice giver per se, but I do like advice and to be advised. Not, I don't like to be told what to do, uh, but I like to be presented with options in the form of, of advice or like, uh, what do they call it, aphorism or whatever. Uh, so one of the best things of advice that stuck out to me was uh, from Tony Robbins' Twitter feed and he once tweeted, the key to success is being able to deal with massive amounts of rejection. And I think it's true um, because that, those, it's the rejections and the no's, those things that will kind of give you the obstacle to either overcome or succumb to and not the pats on the back. It's, it's can you deal with not being patted on the back after you do something cool or think you're doing something cool, or, you know, tried something out and even, even more so to be criticized for it or to be not booked on a show again or to be not asked back to a thing or a venue or not be able to show your stupid art in a fucking stupider gallery, you know? So keep dealing with rejection. I don't know how you do that. He didn't give that advice. Like, how do you deal with? He just said that's how you succeed is by dealing with and a lot of it, but how do you deal with a lot of it? I never, never saw a follow-up tweet. This episode's hot tip is brought to you by Brooklyn-based comedian Ben Kronberg. Check him out on Twitter at Ben Kronberg. That's K-R-O-N-B-E-R-G. And his website, BenKronberg.com, for tour dates and funny things. Dance if you want to. Play the piano if you have long, beautiful fingers, or if you have stumpy ones, too. Oh, and quit your job if you hate it. Chances are there's something better out there for you anyway. Here's Doyle. I graduated from college and went through a series of jobs that sounded really great and exciting and important. I found myself after a series of these jobs working at the World Bank in DC. I was working for a department of the World Bank that does basically project finance. We would invest this money in companies that operate in developing countries, private companies, not governments. And we would, by doing that, develop the private sector. But we also had a dual mission where every project we um, invested in, we wanted to try and make money. And so at this point, I'd been working in finance for a while and I, I didn't really like it. 
but it was kind of all I knew to do at that point. And this job at the World Bank sounded so exciting because it was still finance, fine, but I got to travel and to feel like what I was doing was making a really positive impact in the world. I did that for about three years. And then I was sitting in my boss's office one day We were just talking about a project. He kind of paused and he said, you know, the thing that makes our work so fascinating is not necessarily what these companies do, but it's more about the numbers. It's about kind of structuring these deals to make it so that, you know, we can make more money. And I had this moment where my mind just went blank and my heart kind of sank. I was like, oh my God, I don't care about that at all. I kind of agreed with him because I didn't want to reveal myself to be this imposter sitting in his office. I'm not even that good at mental math. I don't care that much about these numbers and I really get bored like sitting and building these financial models for weeks on end. I just don't care. I guess I could just finally admit that to myself. This was a pretty scary moment for me because up until that time I had really based a lot of who I thought I was on what I did for a living and that's I guess what I'd been taught growing up that you know you're gonna graduate from college and you're gonna get this job one day that just makes you who you are and that's what I'd been sort of searching for this whole time and feeling like an imposter. And then I got kind of depressed because I guess when you start to realize you don't really know yourself, you get sad. Then I finally decided just to quit my job and move back to Texas. I couldn't handle it anymore. I didn't have a plan and that was the point. I wanted to just move back and be somewhere where I felt like I was at home and not have to answer that question, what do you do all the time? And then when I, I moved to Austin, I when people did ask me that question, I took great pleasure in <laughs> being able to say, I don't know, who cares? And during this time, I, I kind of just did whatever I wanted. I got a job that gave me a lot of free time. When I had that free time, I took an acting class just because it's fun. And then I started taking a lot of film classes on like lighting and sound. I found really fascinating that things I just had never even considered before. There, it was like this whole new world was opening up to me. I did a lot of writing and started learning to play the piano and for the most part felt really free and quite happy but there was still this part of me that was really freaked out. It would sometimes like this little tiny voice in my head would like you know keep me up at night. What are you doing like quitting your job and learning to play the piano at like age 28 what's wrong with you and then I you know be like oh it's well my fingers are so nimble after all these years working in Excel and isn't it just like more beautiful to play music than build financial models. So I was kind of in this weird limbo back and forth of really just completely letting go and enjoying myself and doing whatever I wanted and then freaking out when my little brother got really sick. He was 12 years old at the time and we found out he had a brain tumor. I spent the next like five, six months in and out of the hospital with him. He had 13 surgeries over the course of those five or six months. And we basically, you know, spent that whole time kind of like freaked out that he was gonna die. He almost died many times. It was horrible. It was the scariest thing I've ever been through. I couldn't help but notice when he was in the ICU and talking to doctors and nurses, he would always tell them he was a tennis player. That was who he he was. That's still, you know, who he is. And as he was rehabbing, he's still kind of going through rehab now. I think the only thing that's really keeping him going, saving him from getting majorly depressed, is that he's able to go and play a little bit of tennis every day. That's what he loves to do. It makes him happy. And and so I think I would have been completely blindly stubborn to not realize through this experience that actually what you do with your time on this earth is really important and it matters. Maybe what's been stopping me this whole time is that I've been really freaked out 
afraid to do things I cared about because if I did them and I failed, that would mean I wasn't whole or I wasn't you know, worthy of being around. The best part about this completely horrific experience of like having him almost die on us all, all you know, for half a year was that I got to see what an incredibly fearless badass he is. You want to take me on? I will take you down. Right before his first brain surgery, which by the way was on his 13th birthday, he shook his neurosurgeon's hand and said, are you up for this? When he, you know, saw me sitting by his hospital bed, like my, you know, tears all over my face and like totally freaked out. He looked at me and said, I'm going to be okay, Kirsten. To me, he's the person that kept us all going through all of this. I guess I just started thinking, like, the people that I keep around in my life that I want to be around, I don't seek them out because they're doctors or lawyers or wandering vagrants. <laughs> I want them to be in my life because they're funny, they're sweet, they're honest, confident, pure. I guess what I've kind of figured out for myself through all of this is that it doesn't matter really to anyone else what you do. It really shouldn't matter. You should do things just because you like them. Then you should also just be who you are. Remember that those two things are very separate. I'm happy, I'm awesome, I'm cool, and I'm strong. I live next to a forest, and the forest is over a fence, and I don't know what else. I have a treehouse, I already said that. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I'm smart, I'm funny, and I will cheer you up. (laughs) I think I'm a cog in the world. I think that the world is a huge machine and I'm just a cog in the whole world. The machine isn't, that can be used as a doormat. He's so not, I'm nice. I love helping out people. I'm I'm a very generous person. I do know when somebody's taking action on me though. I'm assertive, but I am very, very calm. Let me just say I'm a fan of you. Even with people that are very rude or obnoxious, I give them a few chances. Because I know, because everybody in the world needs a chance. I'm a tennis player. I'm left-handed. I have a big but special and loving family. In all honesty, I just am very thankful to be alive. Gonna keep fighting. If your life was a movie, would you watch it? Imagine your life is an action adventure. You're the hero who gets to save people. What if your weapon of choice was your courage to speak up? Your ability to transcend perceptual identity? Here is Lisa to share her story. So I was a couple years out of college and working for a non-governmental organization focused on international development, and we were focused on maternal and child health. One of our projects was to look at maternal and child health in three different countries, India, Peru, and Zimbabwe. 
On our trip to Peru, we had the opportunity to go up into the Central Highlands, which would have been the base of the Shining Path. The Shining Path is a mouse guerrilla insurgent organization in Peru, widely condemned for its brutality, including violence deployed against peasants, trade union organizers, popularly elected officials, and the general population. As we ventured up, we were going through rivers as there was no roads. It went quite high in the altitude, so we became very nauseous. As we ventured far and far up into the mountains, we came upon a community, and it was mostly girls, and um, mostly children and their mothers. There were very few men left, as many of them had killed um, as being part of the Shining Path. In addition to being there to talk to these women and their children and understand what access they had to you know, health and water and school and food, we were also there to film them so that we could document how these women were living following the major rising of the Shining Path. We spent several days there and they were very welcoming and loving. They made, the whole community was fed out of one big pot where they would cook rabbit stew. The school had no running water, but there was, it was a building where all children came together to try to learn. The area was green and hilly and beautiful and the women and children were dressed in hats and beautiful woven scarves and often you could see charity clothes that had been given from different communities and you would see Nike and some of those other big brands here way far up into the mountains. While the, the situation was challenging as they had very little food and little coverage and most of the men again were either still fighting or had been gone, there were a few men there to keep them safe and help to try to um, provide for them. After about four days of being up high and also feeling a bit nauseous from the altitude, we started to make our way back down, once again driving through the river because there were no roads. As we started to make our way back down, about an hour into the trip, suddenly a truck started running towards us with men and guns in the back. For, for us, there was just four of us, the driver slash translator, an older gentleman that was Sri Lankan Canadian who filmed um, the community, and our director, a fast-talking New Yorker. The men started yelling at us in Quechua, many of us only understanding a little bit of Spanish. Our driver was trying to understand what they were saying, and they were yelling at us and waving their guns, obviously making all of us very, very scared. And as the only woman, and only 23 at the time, I immediately felt very alarmed and worried about my safety. So they continued to yell. I continued to have no idea what was going on, only very worried that something would happen to me. And so they took us about a mile from the river into this shelter or this somewhat looked like almost a barn with no animals. And again, it was very remote. There was nothing around. There was no place to run. You could only do what they said. They didn't seem overly angry. They didn't seem mean. They just seemed very animated and kept yelling things that they seemed to want us to know. But with the exception of the driver, the video guy and I didn't know what they were talking about. And so they tied us up. They never hit us. They never kicked us. They never brought us any harm except to tie us up. Um, rather loosely. And so while I was very scared, I also was perplexed because they didn't seem to be malicious. And many of them actually looked just like very young, scared boys in very ragged clothes. And so I just sat there and I hoped. I don't believe in God. I did believe that they seemed nice in their eyes. Although they were yelling and waving their guns, I felt very confused. 
The two men I was with, with the exception of the driver, were useless and just started cursing at them and yelling at them, which I did not think was helpful whatsoever. Finally, our driver slash translator was able to understand that they wanted us to send a message back to the United Nations, back to the government of Peru, back to the people in Lima, that while the Shining Path had been defeated and people were beginning to think that the area was safe again, and that's why they allowed us as a team to even go up there, that they were not giving up their cause and they still had a message. And that's what they wanted us to share. Or at least that's what we thought, that's what our driver told us. So probably after a period of seven hours, as the sun was starting to go down, I finally said to them, knowing they had no idea, what I was saying was if they did not want to bring us harm, they should let us go because it would protect them of harm. And somehow, when we got back in their truck to go to our truck, and they put us back in the truck as we wade through the river, saying nothing, still sitting with their guns in the air and having that same sad look in their eyes. And we proceeded a very long drive through a river in the darkness, none of us saying anything, all a bit scared. It felt sad for us, it felt scary for us, and it felt scary for the communities that they were living by. As we got back to the, the airport where we had missed our earlier flight to fly back to Lima, um, we all just fell into exhaustion and said nothing. The following morning, I had to call in a report about what happened, which I called back to my boss in Copenhagen and provided a detailed explanation what had happened. But I chose not to try to press any charges or try to report it to the Peruvian government or to the UN because I did not truly believe that they wanted to bring harm. The Canadian and the New Yorker felt differently and they immediately quit the job and flew back to Canada and New York and refused to continue the work. So I went upon my time and then flew back to Lima and went back to my hotel in Miraflores where I tried to settle in and understand what had happened for the few days. Upon the afternoon of getting back to Lima, I decided I wanted to call my mom and had no idea that she, you know, she would know anything that was going on. And little did I know that the plane that we had missed because we were there with them being kidnapped had crashed and she had been called as the person for the emergency notification. And she thought this very small plane, which had had me, had crashed and we had all died because the people that were in the plane had died. And so it just magnified this crazy experience of being taken by these men who seemed to not want any harm, but were desperate, feeling concerned the whole time that I was going to be raped or hurt or something feeling angry at the men that I was with for not being braver and stronger, and then coming back to find that had all that not happened, I would have been in that plane that crashed. And so obviously my mother was hysterical crying, thinking it was crazy, and I was hysterical crying because I didn't know what she was talking about. I fly back to Copenhagen and go back to my job and get assigned to a new country. I've had all this happen in my life, thinking it must mean something but not really knowing what it meant, has stuck with me all these years. I think that behind this story that I've carried with me through the rest of my work in international development and well into 20 years now in the corporate world is that behind every sense of greed or anger or frustration, often, not always, but usually there's just a very scared human being. But if we greet it with anger or fear, it's just like putting oil into a fire. 
And so I found that it's not a man's job to always be strong. It's often the strongest thing to do is to try to diffuse the situation and understand where someone's coming from. And if we sometimes look past people's positions or we look past people's levels, we can find a sense of humanity. You've just heard Lisa M., Kirsten Doyle, Justin Perez, Zach Myers, Ben Kronberg, Delia Rune, Leila and Daniel Antonini, Noel and David Taylor, and Colin Gardner. Special thanks to Sam Gray. Extra special thanks to Alex Taylor and JJ Hillwood. And the town of Marfa, Texas. Ripple Puddle is produced by myself, Stephanie Hafer, and Carla Taylor. Theme music by Stephanie Hafer, Hot Tips theme by Carla Taylor, and Broke for Free. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to check out our website, www.ripplepuddle.com. We would also love to hear from you. Yes, you. If you'd like to pitch a story, email us at ripplepuddle at gmail.com or leave it at 313-389-6013. Remember to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. It keeps iTunes happy, which pushes us to the top of the lists, which in turn makes us happy and inspired to create more episodes. Here's a teaser for episode six, Stranger Than What, due out April 2nd. Hi, I'm Stephanie. You're Carla, right? She seems really busy. She's got a good camera. I didn't realize she was a photographer, too. She does everything. I love her dress. I should probably have dressed up more. I feel a little underdressed. Her hair and makeup look so good. She's really beautiful. Yeah, pleasure to finally meet you. Emily's told me so much about you. I think we're now supposed to be best friends. Is this the cool kid's table? They all look like they've known each other for a really long time. And I'm wearing this stupid fucking dorky dress. I never fit in with the cool kids. My hair is frizzy, and she's so elegant and pretty and bright. Yeah, it's so good to finally meet you too. Emily has told me how awesome you are. Emily said she was so cool and that we would get along. She seems aloof. I guess she's busy. I guess we just need to get to know each other. Well, see you in a bit. Gonna take some pictures. Good thing I have my camera. Just gonna avoid that table as much as I can by acting really, really busy. Alright, talk to you later. Oh my god, she has things to do and is way too cool right now. I don't think she wants to be friends with me. Join us for our next episode, Stranger Than What? Stranger Than What? April 2nd, 2015. Because every single person you know was once a stranger to you. And join us for a new feature, an interim mini-episode on March 19th, 2015. This and much more.